I never came to peace. Mm -hmm. I shut up. Mm -hmm. But I never came to peace. You know, I shut up for the sake of my parents. And I always kept my mouth shut for the sake of my mother. But all these years, I wanted to know who killed my sister. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The Baltimore City State's Attorney's Office opted not to bring any criminal charges against Father Maskell. I went down to the Baltimore City Courthouse several times. I went to the archives. We found not only Maskell, but there was virtually no priest in Baltimore that had been found guilty of sex abuse crimes. Despite the Archdiocese list in 02 that had maybe 50 names on it, And when I go through the civil cases that were filed against the the priests in the archdiocese, everyone I can find was either dismissed on the statute of limitations or it was settled by the church with a cash settlement. So there were no findings, no Catholic priest was ever found guilty of abuse there either. Hello and welcome to Real Crime Profile. This is Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is... Laura Richards, former criminal behavioral analyst in New Scotland Yard and founder and director of Paladin National Stalking Advocacy Service. And I am Lisa Zambetti. I am the casting director for Criminal Minds, where Jim Clemente is my colleague. We're at hour eight of recording... (laughs) 
our our series on the keepers, and I'm sweating, and and Jim is punchy. Laura's almost asleep because it's one in the morning where she is. So here we go. Well, I don't it's know only how... half past eight at night. I'm good, oh, okay. Lisa. I'm, okay. How could I fall asleep with present company via yeah. Skype? Okay. There's no way. We're, we're a little punchy, yeah. guys. All we're right. So at least one of us is punchy, Lisa, but the other two are very related in time and place, okay. and we know exactly where we are. Okay. I'm here okay. in California with you. Laura's mm. in. London, and we're going to be fine. So here we go on episode six of The Keepers, a series that has infuriated the three of us over and over again with some of the revelations that were made. And we're now talking about episode six, The Web. And one of the important things that happens is that we do meet Edgar. Edgar being Uncle Ed, Edgar Davidson, who a woman by the name of Debbie Yan believes that her uncle was implicated by his wife in the death of Sister Kathy. We see early pictures of Edgar, you know, when he was young back in the day, and he looks like quite the Hellraiser. He looks like he's, you know, up to nothing but trouble. Sort of a Jimmy uh, Dean character in... Uh, in Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah, I was thinking more like, uh, what's that guy, uh, Edgar G. Robinson? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, like, anyway. Um, but, Leave it to Lisa yeah, to talk yeah, about sorry. casting. Yeah, but when we see him now, talk about casting, he looks like Rip Taylor. And when we see him now, he's got really long, scraggly hair. He looks... Homeless. Homeless, indigent. Creepy. You know, just a little well, vulnerable and fragile, a little bit to me. What about you, Laura? I mean, I agree with Jim. I mean, he's a bit creepy. And, you know, certainly the interview, I think, is quite interesting because they challenge him, don't they? And this is where the the kind of the documentary breaks a little bit in style yeah. where you've got direct questions being asked from. Is it is it actually Ryan White who's asking the questions? Yes, I believe it is him. So he's actually asking him, you know, very specific questions. And, of course, he's trying to get to the bottom of. I think it was the radio show, wasn't it? In August 1994, the Jerry Turner radio show had a phone-in and a man called in claiming to know who killed Kathy and where Sister Kathy's rosary was. And so the first part is all about questioning Edgar about that because his niece was the one who actually says, Ed's niece says that she believes it to be her uncle. So that takes Ryan White. Well, he's in a, he's got a situation here, hasn't he? Because he, why would he not go and interview and ask those questions? Right. But still, that interview made me a little uncomfortable. I, I guess not so much for you guys, but it just, it did. I mean, unless his family was there with Ryan while these questions were happening, I, I just, something about it just, I don't know, it bumped well, me a little bit. I'm not sure that maybe they were, uh, Sorry, but it's all about good. his but, vulnerability. But yeah, that they maybe maybe as in praying. being now, asked he, these questions. Yeah, I mean, he may have been crazy like a fox. He may have been extremely wily and maybe putting on an act. But it did seem a little bit like he was being kind of invaded in his home and you know asked these questions and pictures shoved in his face. I mean, I'm glad that he did that, but I, something just had ah, bugged me a little bit. I don't know. Well, but he had the right to refuse, of course. Yeah, he didn't and, have he didn't know, to. Yeah. Yeah, and we are going talking on. about a murder investigation yeah, no, here, I so I, I, I didn't feel like he was being abused, if that's what you're saying. But I wouldn't say that, but I just something about it. Unless he's being very cagey and is putting on an act, he seemed very confused and a little frightened, and I, I don't know. 
Uh, but anyway. I don't know. This is my I opinion. don't know. If I, I get it. But the thing is that the whole thing about the rosary, Laura, what did you think? I mean, I know that some some people will try to insert themselves into an investigation because they feel like their lives were meaningless and they saw this as an opportunity to get involved in something. Do you think that's what it was when he called in saying he knew where the rosary was? Because he certainly tries to fall back on that later. Yeah, well, that's what what he says, isn't it? And I guess, you know, is it somebody who is kind of feeling their life is insignificant, as you say, and therefore trying to assume a bit more importance? And maybe that's what you pick up on a little bit, Lisa, you know, as a sense of uh, vulnerability. I mean, I have a question mark around that. Or is it somebody who does know something? And of course, this is where asking the right questions and having uh, experienced detectives Mm -hmm. to ask these questions is really important. Because I have to say that there are quite a lot of questions that are put to him that are very, uh, what I would say, are very leading questions and kind of answer the question and give him the answer rather than the other way around. You know, you want to ask a question to get information out. You don't want to be giving the information, then asking the question, because for obvious reasons, you've already led somebody and, you know, it becomes a useless process. So I think there were some interesting parts to this interview. I mean, for one, getting to see him, you know, I think they because they talked about him and they'd set him up. So we get to see him for the first time. But he does say a lot of it he doesn't really remember. Um, You know, he says that he makes it up. He says he doesn't know Maskell. Um, Again, I don't know the backstory to know whether he even did. And, of course, this is, again, where you would absolutely want to do your research before going to speak to someone, you know, who could potentially be a significant witness, potentially be a suspect. Um, You know, I, I felt that that back part, Maybe Ryan White did do all of that, but I certainly didn't get that sense. Um, and I felt he was a, a little bit out of his depth in terms of uh, the questions that he was asking. Yeah, for sure. I felt I really felt for the filmmaker at that moment because he certainly does not, as you say, want to break that style. He's probably used to asking a question and then either Abby or Gemma, they can go on and on and on with an answer and he doesn't have to really kind of lead them anywhere. But in this case, yeah, you're right. He's out of his depth trying to pull this information out of this gentleman. And, and um, you know, definitely if there had been law enforcement there, it probably would have been a better interview. But... Anyway, what did you think, Jim? Yeah, I mean, first of all, we only are seeing pieces of this interview. Obviously, we didn't see the whole thing, so we don't know how in-depth he went or whether he confronted him on any issues that that were uh, corroborated or refuted by by any research that he did. So I have no idea how in-depth he went, but certainly I would have liked to have seen the police department do this interview and have a comprehensive preparation for the interview and then follow up on this interview. Because if he did call in and say that he was related to this case, then he does become a suspect and he should have been treated as such. But I don't believe there was any indication that 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 actually happened in this case, an open murder investigation. Right. I mean, I think there's an interesting point about the ex-wife, because, of course, she makes a disclosure about domestic violence and he it is put to him. Is she honest in what she's saying? And he says, yes. 
And, you know, was there blood on your shirt? And he says, yes. So, you know, there's definitely more there that should be probed. Yeah. Uh, more, more questions to ask without a doubt. But we just didn't get that depth. And I think that's a missed opportunity, actually. Yeah. Well, hopefully the Baltimore County or City Police Department, whoever has jurisdiction on this right now, will have seen the keepers and follows up with him because... As I said, it's an open murder investigation. Yeah, I'm sure Abby and Gemma and Ryan White would have loved to have the police there. <laughs> you know, if only they would take an interest in Hopefully it. Hopefully they have a better prosecutor because ADA May was a complete farce. Well, worse than that. So now we turn to a point that I think all of us have been waiting have been waiting for. And I know Laura mentioned this in the very, very first episode about, you know, really wanting to hear from Kathy's family and and you know, who knows at what point Marilyn became involved in the documentary, but finally, dramatically, we finally get to meet Marilyn, Kathy's younger sister, in a very emotional meeting. Looks like at her in the hotel lobby with um, Gemma and Marilyn. What did what did you think about that scene? Well, I was really glad to see it finally, and uh, you know, get a real sense of where Kathy's come from, and hear from her sister, and you know, see the pictures of them growing up and. The fact there was six years difference between them and, you know, I just thought it was, it was just a very moving encounter and it made it all so much more human. You know, hearing that the mother had kept all these articles for all these years, but hadn't really spoken about it, I think says something also about this quiet dignity you know, and humility about how she was dealing with it. And that it wasn't, you know, something that was talked about as much. But, you know, she was keeping track of everything that was happening. And of course, you know, we learned that there wasn't really much of an investigation. So I I just felt this real pang of knowing this family sort of trusted in the police and that they were doing everything that they should have been doing. You know, they felt that they were, but there was no real questioning of that and just tracking it via the media, you know, and keeping everything and keeping it in in the attic or wherever it was. I I just felt very sad about that. That did seem sad that the mom was clearly clinging to any uh, news story about this case and was following it, yet yet Marilyn had no idea, had no idea that this was even being pursued and thought it was just a done case. It was just a random killing. And that's what the family on the surface accepted. And then to know that the mom really all along in her gut knew that, that something else had happened. I mean, that, I think that must have been a real shock for Marilyn to find that out. Right. Because Maskell's mentioned for the first time. Is that that right? That yes. she becomes aware that there's Maskell and, you know, there's could be a whole history here. So it's a real game changer for her. And obviously her confiding in everything that she felt because you never really know how much people discuss things. And sometimes families, they want to protect the other child. And so they don't really talk about it as much because they want the child to, you know, lead a life that is free from the darkness, if you will. But of course, no one truly does because, you know, it, it touches people in different ways. And so if it becomes a secret, that is even more kind of difficult to deal with, I guess. And we hear about that from Marilyn, don't we? Yeah, and sometimes family secrets are more tightly kept than than even murder secrets and sexual victimization secrets. Uh, people have a tendency to want to keep those kinds of things within the family. And, of course, I mean, the whole 
aspect of this case where Kathy, to try to protect Jane Doe, uh, confronts Maskell and 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 then mysteriously leaves the school and Maskell remains and then is still in place and in a way that he can use that against Jane Doe over and over and over again and make her feel worse about everything that he's done to her and that she's been through. It's just a terrible, terrible thing. And so I'm sure that when Marilyn kind of got the full scope of all that that was going on behind the scenes uh it probably dredged up all the horrific things that she went through when Kathy first was went missing and then then was murdered I think it's also interesting here that uh, Marilyn also hears for the first time that Gemma and Abby who've done all of this work uh the police have never spoken to them and so she gets this sense of, well, well, hang on, you know, there's some really valuable things that Gemma and Abby have learned, and yet there's no join up with the police. And so she gets the sense that things perhaps haven't been done as thoroughly as what they should have been. But it's a very human part to the story, isn't it? And as you said, you know, families deal with it very differently and individual people in that family deal with it very differently. Well, I think we're going to find out some other things about the interactions with the police that are even more disturbing as we go along here. So let's uh, move on to the next aspect of this episode, which was Father Jerry Koob. And this is a an interesting aspect of the the documentary series. I don't know how you felt, Laura, but I actually was very convinced by Jerry Koob's behavior that he was actually a legitimate guy who was ready to become a priest but fell in love with Sister Kathy and then wanted to leave the priesthood for her, was willing to give that up for her and so they could be together. And I I thought that he came across as a very genuine person that way. What did you think? I would have to agree with that. I think, you know, from my perspective, he certainly seemed genuine and credible and he really cared for Sister Kathy. I mean, that's every, everything that you hear and see in the way that he recounts their relationship seems authentic. And there's nothing that makes me question his... Uh, behavior or his intent or his credibility and you know that night we know that he went to see um, what was it Easy Rider but he went to the movies he had a ticket he went with somebody else you know he did have an alibi but it sounds to me that he was the person of interest right from the start in terms of the police investigation right and I think that part of that is normal because when you have a, a, a victim who is a low-risk victim who isn't out there um, in a situation where, where she is su- subject to or exposed to many dangers, that, that usually you look very close in uh, to their circle of friends and, and so forth. But um, there is just a very clear sorrow, deep, regretful sorrow in his voice and in his demeanor 
and I just I, I find it very credible. And the what the documentary was trying to play up was the his behavior. One, why was he called instead of the police when she doesn't turn up back at her apartment when she becomes uh, missing? And why didn't they then immediately call the police? And I think that shows a, a, a lack of understanding of how things usually go. Uh, in, in reality, most people don't immediately believe that something horrific has happened. Uh, they know this person. They know that, that they're not you know, irresponsible and that they would normally come home. But they think that maybe something came up legitimate. And until there's some evidence that that there was foul play they don't necessarily believe that and in this case it wasn't until they actually were walking around the property and they found her car basically abandoned and muddy tires and and twigs on, uh, hanging from the steering wheel and and all this you know the pa- fact that it was parked in a Ill, sort of illegally at a caddy corner in a in a driveway all that kind of stuff well, that was information to them that indicated foul play, and therefore they did immediately call the police. So I think his behavior was very normal under the circumstances. I think probably what the detectives suspected or may have had some evidence about was the fact that he had a relationship, apparently, with Sister Kathy. And they may have thought that that was something he wanted to hide because of his priesthood, and therefore maybe that's a motive for killing her. Um, I don't believe that was the case. I don't believe there was any kind of real indication of that. And he would have had to have been a magician to be able to be with her roommate, Sister Kathy's roommate, and materialize the car uh, during the time that they were together. So unless he had somebody uh, with him, and and that doesn't make much sense because I believe the car was returned to that location due to the fact that the killer drove to that location to meet Sister Kathy and then drove away in her car and then had to return the car so that he could get his own car back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage in a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. 
Now, there is a, a passage in scripture about everything that is in darkness being brought to light. If there were ever any remote possibility that he had been involved in something criminal, I would want that brought to light. <laughs> I, I too, just on a human level, found him very sympathetic and very consistent. And you see footage of him throughout the years of being interviewed, and he just seems very consistent in his sorrow and his story. And you know, even when he meets his wife, one of the first things he tells her is that he's lost somebody very dear to him named Kathy. And and so I got a, uh, in the pit of my stomach, I got a terrible feeling when journalist Tom Nugent starts to kind of float his skepticism of Coob and and uh, implies that uh, Detective Harry Bannon says that Nugent, if Father Coob didn't kill her, he knows who did. Because I was like, oh, God, no, <laughs> not him, you know. Yeah, I just think that's that's the the mistake of an investigator coming up with a theory and then trying to squeeze the facts into it as opposed to letting the facts say where where his investigative efforts should be pointed. I really believe that they got a hold of information about a relationship between Kube and Kathy, and I think that they believed, now they developed the theory that, oh my God, this is why he killed her. Um, of course, at the time, they had no idea that Father Maskell had been molesting kids in the schools and and that Sister Kathy was trying to prevent that from happening and she ended up out of the school. I think all those details would have given them another major lead to pull on. Uh, and, of course, they didn't have the information and they didn't follow that investigative trail. And perhaps they didn't clear the ground from under their feet right at the start. I mean, if he was with, was it Peter McEwen? They'd been to see this movie together. It, it appears that he was never spoken to. Um, you know, he was 85 years of age. And I think Marilyn then calls him up, doesn't she? And, and checks and finds out, you know, was he with Coob or Jerry Coob, etc. Um, and he basically alibis him and says that they were together. So... Yes, to be in two places at once and to be able to do all of this and the fact that he's authentic, it sounds like, in his account. And then, of course, we hear about the, the love letters, you know, between the two, which, you know, are very moving. There's clearly a relationship. And, of course, there wasn't meant to be one. So, you know, that that's a challenge. But I just really got the sense that Kathy did love Jerry um, you know, and she was talking about her period coming late. Oh my gosh, it's she... so intimate. What did you What did you make of that, Laura? I mean, at this time for a man and a woman to be discussing that, I mean, I don't even think my father knew my mother had a period. I mean, I don't think that yeah. it was normal for, <laughs> you know, to have that kind of highly intimate confidence well, it, in somebody. It certainly indicates a very intimate and most likely sexual relationship between the two of them. And not that it was approved of by the church but seemed very natural and human to me yeah yeah and sure. they fell in love and yet they both had made commitments that had, they had not finalized and there's a reason why you don't make those commitments until after a certain period of time has passed in those positions of being a nun or a priest and that is because people are human and they want to minimize the number of people who make that commitment early and then find out it wasn't for them and for Father Koob, 
it wasn't for him because he wanted to be with Sister Kathy. And unfortunately for Sister Kathy, she made the decision to stay with being a nun, and and that brought her into the realm of Father Maskell and, and the horrific crimes that he committed. And in trying to stop those crimes, she may have been killed as a result of it. And she, I mean, yes, there's a clearly an intimate relationship here. But, and she did say that she wanted to have his children. So there's no doubt that they both felt as strongly about each other. Um, but you're right. It was Kathy that seems to have said to him, you know, we've got a higher mission. You know, she's talking about at that level, their mission and their human design of why they're on the planet. Um, and he seems to accept that. And, you know, I can imagine these are very difficult decisions for them both. But it doesn't talk to motive. You know, there, there's a, a challenge here because, of course, they're looking at um, Jerry because they don't understand this relationship. And I think that's the, the, the nub of it, that they don't understand this higher mission that they both seem to have and this level of intimacy. And the focus just seems to be on him rather than having keeping an open mind. So whereas with somebody who is low risk, you would look to those relationships around her, but you still have to keep an open mind and go where the right. evidence takes you. And of course, then we have this uh, disclosure about when Jerry is uh, interviewed by yeah, one of what the, the fuck? detectives, yeah. <laughs> which what the fuck? I mean, I just had this, as I'm sure you both did. And I, I was just like, what is going on here? Is this for real? Yeah, yeah. After, I mean, after all of this, like, you know, c- consistent interviewing with Jerry Coop, all of a sudden there's this red herring or or whatever you want to call it. Uh, the vagina. Yeah, the yeah, the vagina <laughs> being thrown <laughs> yeah. on the table, her what, vagina. What is he talking? What could that be? I well, mean, what do you mean? I'll tell you what it could be. It could be Baltimore police officers thinking they have the killer in front of them and they are going to shock him into a confession. And this is outrageous police conduct, if it happened. But I believe it happened. I don't believe that he made that up. Why? How? In what universe could a man just create that memory and and state this for the world to hear it? Knowing it's so that, obscure. Yeah, it's such an obscure thing to say, isn't it? And random. Therefore, well, it I, points to veracity. Well, before you think it's so outrageous, no, no. you should know that yeah. I was, I've been to the Medical Examiner Museum in New York City, and they have jars of various pieces of people involved in crimes. And there is, uh, I remember it vividly, there is one jar that has uh, a woman's vagina in it because that was involved in how she died. And it's... It's a different world. I mean, I if they believe there was sexual assault, they they might have removed the vagina from her vo- body during the autopsy and kept it. And the police may have taken it from the ME's office to use as a prop to to actually get him to confess. And I think it's outrageous. It's inhuman. It's it's just the worst example of police conduct. But I know and you've heard of other cases in which the Baltimore police did not actually do the right things in certain cases, and therefore this could be true. 
I just, I just anatomically, I did not understand. Was it like a pelvis? Like I just, the image of it, I don't understand. And why this would be like hanging around in the back room. It's just. It's not hanging around the back room. I believe they did it deliberately. They would have had to have gotten it from the Emmy's office and they would have had to use it in a way that, that, and that, that would try to shock him into a confession. And the thing that makes it real to me Mm -hmm. is that it would have been wrapped in paper. Because uh, as human tissue, if it was in plastic, it would rot. But paper would allow it to dry out. That's how we used. That's what we used for human and biological materials. We would put them in paper bags. So uh, that actually makes it more believable to mm. me rather than yep. showing them it in a plastic bag. Yeah, I mean, these details point to veracity. And because it's just such a random, obscure thing to say, you know, there's been nothing else in his accounts that you right. would would lead you to believe that he's saying this for any other reason than it's the truth. And I, I think the next part where we hear the police, the senior officer again, I think it's John Barnard, isn't it, talk basically in reaction to hearing this and saying, you know, that that, that didn't happen on my watch. You know, it certainly didn't happen. And I just find that comment as well. I I really struggled with it because clearly he had no idea what was going on because he wasn't supervising people. He wasn't interested in the investigation. He wasn't asking questions. And quite frankly, he had no fucking idea what was happening. So he kept saying, oh, we had other things to do. The the hell you did. This is a murder investigation. You treated it like like she ran away, even though she was a nun, even though she was there every single other night of the entire time that she lived there. They should have, those are red flags. They should have really jumped on it immediately. They didn't until another girl goes missing. That's when they they started looking at it. So for the first days, the most critical days in any homicide investigation, they did nothing. And then it it was kind of a CYA kind of thing afterwards where he just wanted to make sure that they didn't get basically ridiculed because they weren't doing anything. But it's still clear from the lack of leads that were developed that should have been developed the the car for example i mean that was that they should have taken every muddy road off the main road in the area and looked they should have done searches in areas where where this clearly indicates that she wasn't taken to a warehouse she wasn't taken to an abandoned building she wasn't taken to a, a railway station or a river or whatever she was taken to some place that was was filled with bushes and brambles and mud, and that's where they should have been looking. But they weren't, and you know they weren't proactive on it at all. And he says because they have all these other cases, therefore, how could he possibly understand you know what was going on because he was so busy? And so he kind of it, it, he contradicts himself basically. It's in, yeah. incongruent. But I think you know when we think about Jerry Coop, well, why would he lie? I mean, you know, a lie has to serve a purpose, doesn't it? And what purpose would this serve? I mean, she loved him. He loved her. He was, She wasn't pregnant. There doesn't even appear to be a motive. And, and why would he make up something so fantastic? I mean, it would just draw further attention to him and put him further under the microscope, right. uh, I would suspect. So uh, this part is just such a, a strange disclosure and revelation, but I can completely believe it because it's so strange. Yeah, and I know it is actually an accepted police practice to when you have somebody who is close to 
the victim or had a relationship with the victim in a murder case to bring in something like an article of clothing, a ring they wore, a necklace, something. But a, a body part, on, yeah, yeah, a body part, no. A body part, a sexual body, absolutely not. And so I think these guys were cowboys. I, I've heard absolutely that kind of reputation for people from that department and and not to disparage all the cops in that department. But if these guys did that, that was, that was that's heinous. That's absolutely heinous, and it should never have been done. And it's just an indication of how poor this investigation was. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY. There are three people that were present in Kathy's apartment all night after she disappeared. One of them was Jerry Koob. The other one was Pete McKeon, who was his friend, another priest, who we have not been able to locate or talk to. And the third was Kathy's roommate, Russell Phillips. Russell unfortunately died of cancer. So the information that we have been given about what happened the night that Kathy disappeared really comes in a, in a large part from Jerry Koob. Sister Kathy's roommate was Sister Russell. And the documentary now turns to sort of raising questions about what she knew and what she knew about Maskell and what was going on with Kathy. I mean, it's pretty obvious that Sister Kathy must have talked to her about what was going on because the night before Kathy goes missing, Maskell and his sidekick show up and and are very irate, and they're, they, they have a discussion, a heated discussion in their apartment, and Russell and Kathy were there together. So there must be some things that she knew about, but she is a nun, and she is in a subservient position to the priest there, to any priest, and that may have been the thing that kept her quiet. 
Yeah, because Sister Russell never actually comes forward and says that Maskell and Magnus visited her, but it's this anonymous student and her boyfriend who have always maintained this. But she definitely has just never volunteered any information about what happened to Kathy. I don't know if she was afraid for her own life or... Or dedicated to the church. Yeah, or had been threatened to not say anything. I don't know, but she definitely is a mystery, and a lot of people who knew her just did not know what made her tick, and that, you know, she went to the grave with some secrets. And the police clearly, you know, said in the documentary that they felt that Russell had the key to unlock the case, which I would certainly agree, but we don't know even what level of questioning. You know, did they even sp- try and speak to her at that time? It's it's not clear. Right. Well, unfortunately, it's a dead end. And unless she wrote her memoirs somewhere and somebody discovers them or she talked to somebody, confided in somebody, um, we may never know what she knew. And hopefully, if you're out there listening and you do know something uh, through Sister Russell, it would be great if you came forward and enlightened us so that we can actually help bring justice to Sister Kathy. And that's a really important um, call out, actually, Jim, because as we know, with time and distance, you know, people do confide and do share things in other people. So she may well have spoken to other people that were in her life thereafter. So it would be great. You know, I would absolutely just reinforce that, that if there is someone who Sister Russell did confide in, well, it's really important that they do come forward and, and say what they what they found out or what they were told could unlock this whole case. Right. So the through line throughout this entire episode is really Abby and Gemma's exhaustive search just to find some hard material evidence somewhere, some kind of documentation somewhere. And it was just an astonishing lack of anything in the police files. They can't get a hold of the autopsy. They're just kind of blocked at every turn um, on things that they know should be there, that there's missing exhibits and missing this and that. Um, I don't know how they continued to go on. I mean, it must have been just incredibly frustrating and yeah, well, time-consuming. What's, what's also frustrating is the fact that they never made an attempt to seize the files of Father Maskell. Uh, it, it was an absolutely relevant and, and available set of, of documents and documentary information that they should have looked at. And certainly whoever was running the school must have been aware of this. And again, the, 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 the principal who, when she found out about the allegations against Father Maskell, gave him 15 minutes to leave, never called the police, never seized any of his documents, never made any attempt to protect the girls in her school or any other children anywhere else. It's disgusting. It's, it's horrific. It's, it's most likely why Sister Kathy lost her life, and it is not what human beings should do when they hear about children being sexually victimized. It is absolutely not. There is no excuse. There is not a single excuse on the planet for what she did, that principle. And that pisses me off as much as what ADA May did, because she was certainly in a, in a position to do something about it. She was certainly incensed by his behavior. She believed it 100%, yet she did nothing. To, to stop him or to protect future victims. So, you know, there's no reason for these files to just disappear unless somebody is proactively making them disappear. And then, of course, off the back of this, we learn that there was a letter that was sent to Kathy's sister 
believed to be from Kathy. And I find this part quite intriguing. You know, this letter that comes after her death that she then calls the police. She, was she told by her father or mother or, you know, to call the police? And someone comes along, takes the letter, and it seems that it was never entered into evidence. What, what do you make a, a, about that, Jim and Lisa? It's horrible. It's just, it just seems like it's another indication that somebody is trying to cover up for this priest, this the sexual victimization that went on here, as opposed to protecting the children that they're charged with protecting. It's just, it's outrageous. I was, though, confused about they referred to it as something being mailed after her death or after her disappearance because the postmark was November 8th and she went missing November 7th. But I was wondering if maybe she had mailed it, but it just didn't get processed until then. I just wasn't sure what they were getting at with that it was something that had been mailed after her death. Yeah, if she put it in a mailbox that night, it wouldn't have been picked up and postmarked till the next day, which is normal. So it could very well be that that letter is what caused her death. In other words, whoever she wrote in that letter about may be the one who met her that night, yelled and screamed that other witnesses heard, and then took her in that car, um, hit her, you know, it was blunt force trauma to her head, took her car, took her in her car, and and brought her out to the woods and, and killed her. I mean, it, it's, it's a motive. It's very direct. It's very immediate. And and clearly, because that letter was delivered, they know what she was, what was on her mind about it. Do you remember what was in that letter, Laura? Well, no one no, knows. Nobody That's knows. Yeah. Because the sister, Marilyn, never opened it. She was told not to open it. She called her uh, father, and her father said, don't open it, don't touch it, give it to the police. I think that somehow she has a picture of the exterior of the envelope, but that's about it. And did you notice this moment when the, the current detective who's on the cold case right now is told about the letter and he has to admit that, oh, wait, you know, that we we should have that and we don't, you know, what happened to it? And all along, he's kind of been defending the Baltimore police that they would never have been involved in a cover up, that they did everything right, you know, and now you can kind of see him thinking like, oh, shit. Yeah, that's documentary proof that something was covered up. And and it just makes so much sense. And and it would be the the final piece that would connect her to her killer. And of course it's gone. And that's just, again, just irreconcilable with justice. It's just not what police departments should be doing. It has nothing to do with, with law enforcement. It has everything to do with covering up and, and there is a huge cover up. There's a known cover up going on at this time by the Catholic church and by people who were members of that church or who respected that church or who were afraid of the backlash from that church. Yeah, I mean, this isn't just conspiracy theory stuff, is it? This is very clearly deliberate, deliberate, intentioned. You know, I just would love to know what was in that letter, what was so important, you know, where an officer came out and then it was just disappeared. It, again, is another critical key Uh, to solving this case. And yet, nobody knows what was in there. I I must admit, you know, I guess if it were me, and I were the sister, I'd be very curious. And I think if somebody had told me not to open it, if it was addressed to me, 
I would still open it. But there again, look at my background and yours, Jim. You know, we're always going to have a curious mind, right? Yeah, but, but Or at least open it in front of the police. Or right. let the police open it in front of her. They yeah. should have. Uh, they should have used forensic measures to open it. In other words, they should have had a mask and a hairnet on and a, and used gloves and done it in a lab and all that. But But they should have shared that with her. And the fact that they didn't with her dead sister, it's just... It's outrageous again, on top of outrage, outrage on top of outrage on top of outrage with this case. And it kind of brings us to our next point, this, the next forensic point, is that Jane Doe said that when she was brought by Father Maskell to see Kathy's body, the, her, she didn't know she was dead. She, was, she saw her on the ground and, and saw maggots crawling over her face and was wiping her, the maggots off her face. And they used that information to discredit Jane Doe, saying it's not possible during this time of the year to have maggots. Well, two things happen. One, they find out that the weather would have allowed it to have happened. And two, Warner Spitz says it's in the autopsy report that there were maggots on the body. It absolutely confirms what Jane Doe said, and it makes everything she said more credible. So that is a direct forensic link between Jane Doe, Father Maskell, and the body of Sister Kathy. That's earth-shattering evidence that Father Maskell was involved in her death. It totally gives credibility to everything that Jane Doe said. The allegations against Father Maskell, the allegations against his cohort, the allegations against Father Magnus, everything has more credibility because forensically, they've proven that she was telling the truth about Sister Kathy having maggots on her face. Yeah, it's crazy. It's finally a bit of good news, and it's all about maggots. Uh, what did you think when you saw Dr. Spitz? Did you know he was in this? I, I, I think I yelled when I saw him on screen. <laughs> well, Dr. Spitz, a good friend of mine and Laura's, has been involved in almost every major case over the last 60 years. He's done well over 60,000 autopsies and consulted on on so many cases he is the expert in this field and when he says something with respect to an autopsy I'm obviously very inclined to believe it because he is the world-renowned expert and he did go to the scene didn't he in in this case he was the pathologist at the ME office so you know, he went to the scene and as we know Jim a picture paints a thousand words but going to the scene paints a million. And, you know, he makes some very clear determinations in this case, doesn't he? Um, which yeah, back in the day, not like now he's just saying these uh, findings, but this was back then at, at in the original actual autopsy, which I thought was, you know, really important. Absolutely. I mean, it's a complete game changer. And I think the way that it's sort of drawn out is particularly well done, actually, by the the documentarian and, you know, hearing about things like the weather as well, um, you know, what the temperature was and things that just become, you know, that kind of take you there, but also are rooted in science. And because the question's sown right at the front, uh, you know, or the top of the documentary about whether these maggots, whether it's even possible for them to be there, and that's her recollection. And, of course, you have... Was it Scannell, the officer, you know, the old officer who Gemma goes and speaks to and he says, absolutely, there were no maggots. Well, I found that a little thing about um, Scannell, the officer, and that he was very good friends with Maskell. Uh, 
surprise, Kel surprise. Yes. So, uh, yeah. you know, again, you another go. interesting backstory about, you know, in a small town, well, it's a big city, actually, but in a small place, who's connected to whom, you know, over the years and, and friendships and loyalties. And of course, here, this is a network that we're talking about, but there's concentric yeah. circles. And he is the key person that basically says that the maggots weren't present. So, well, it's just. When you think about the fact that Maskell was chaplain for the police department, for the National Guard, and for the state police, he he had his talons well sunk into the police departments there, and they were very protective of him, not only because he was a priest, but because he was a friend and because he was part of the Catholic Church, and, and the Catholic Church is deeply ingrained in the city of Baltimore, and I think that all those things were the perfect storm. And unfortunately, these poor child victims were were just abused and, and used and thrown away because of it. And it's just, it's a horrible, horrible situation. And I'm so thankful to the people who produced this documentary series because they're bringing it out. They're letting the truth be known. And they're helping to prevent future generations of, of victims from being victimized. As they say at the end, you know, the truth is here in black and white. And the truth was always there. It was always there. That autopsy was always there that could have corroborated it. But nobody cared about it. Nobody cared to look and bring it forward. Well, next week, we're going to come back with the dramatic conclusion of The Keepers. And there's more to discuss and obviously the ramifications of what this series presented and and what's happening now with the case and with cases similar to it in Baltimore and across the country and around the world. So we have so much more to discuss because seven, there are lots of other revelations as well. But I, for me, that's a, that was a really dramatic end with our friend and colleague, Dr. Werner Spitz, where he is just so, you can see, clear, but he shows us the autopsy as well. We see the pictures, you know, we see what happened to her yeah. skull. It's so Ugh. absolutely visually uh, clear what happened. And, you know, as you said, Lisa, the truth was there in black and white. So we're going to get into uh, more of this, these more revelations in episode seven. So this has been a, a good episode and I'm really looking forward to us to, to discussing the, the last part of this. But of course, it's not really a last part because it's an ongoing and open case. And so this has triggered, as you said, Jim, there are other cases that we're going to discuss off the back of it. Yeah. Well, thanks again for listening to Real Crime Profile. If you like our podcast, there are a few things that you can do. You can take two minutes and go to Apple Podcast and leave us a five-star review. You can also check out all Real Crime Profile offers and promotion and our sponsors in our show notes. Another thing you can do is go over to Facebook and like our Facebook page. And one last thing is please tell all your friends, family and colleagues about us and spread the Real Crime Profile word. Thank you so much for listening to us. We really appreciate you. Real Crime Profile is produced and edited by Paul Francis Sullivan. Sound engineered by Terrell Parham. Music composed by Simba Tsumba. Logo art by Jim Clementi. Real Crime Profile is produced by XG Productions and distributed by Wondery. 
For advice and support, if you're experiencing stalking in the UK, you can contact Paladin National Stalking Advocacy Service on 0203 866 4107 or you can go on the website www.paladinservice.co.uk. If you're experiencing domestic violence, call the National Domestic Violence Helpline, free phone 0800 2000 247. In the US, if you're experiencing domestic abuse and need advice, safety, shelter or counselling, call Genesis, the 24-hour hotline, 214-946-4357 or go on their website, www.genesisshelter.org or the domestic violence hotline on 800-799-7233. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Real Crime Profile ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Ding! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. <laughs> Judy Justice, only on Freebie.